Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Traverse Theatre, Edinburgh. We now join the theatre's literary associate and your host, Rosie Kelliger. Hello and welcome to the Travcast. Today I have with me Stephen Greenhorn, who's taken some time out of rehearsals for Tracks of the Winter Bear to come and chat to me today. Hi Stephen. Hello. Great to have you here. Um, Working across theatre, TV, film and radio and uh, encompassing adaptation and musical, Stephen is a writer who uh, I think it's fair to say is pretty much impossible to pigeonhole. He's the creator of uh, the soap opera River City and he's written for iconic television series such as Doctor Who as well as the acclaimed Glasgow Kiss. For the stage, his work has been produced here at the Traverse and by companies such as The Gate, Payne's Plough and 784. His 1997 play, Passing Places, has been produced around the world and is studied in schools and he wrote the award-winning Proclaimers musical Sunshine on Leith, which he then adapted for the big screen. That's a real diversity of a career portfolio there, Stephen. Yeah, when you read it out like that, it it sounds like I've got some kind of personality disorder. (laughs) (laughs) I think the the truth is that... uh, Somebody asked me this recently, and I think the truth is I'm just easily bored. Ah. Um, I remember when Tom McGrath died, and we had a tribute in Traverse One, and and I was thinking about what it was about Tom that I really admired about his work, and it, I I ended up saying actually because he never wrote the same play twice, everything was different. You know, he would kind of just go off in a different direction, not worrying about whether it was fashionable or not. It was mm. just something that interested him. He's kind of head down that route, and uh, I think that there's a temptation that, that if you do something that works to then kind of stay in that kind of that kind of groove now either i've never done something that's worked <laughs> or i've <laughs> never been i've never I, i've had that feeling of, well i've done that i'll go and do something else yeah. a lot of the time when um from quite early on i was in the fortunate position of being offered different bits of work and and and, and having choices to make about wh- which route i would go down and the, the choice would generally be about the people that i would be working with and also about whether I'd ever done something like that before. So there's much more chance of a, of me doing a project if it was something I'd never tried before. So if mm. someone kind of comes and says, do you want to adapt a novel for the telly? Yeah. Or do you want to kind of say, as James, uh, uh, when he took over at Dundee Rep, said, do you want to try and write a Scottish musical? Then actually the the, the, the thing that kind of hooks you in is the fact, oh, I've never done that before. Yeah, so Let's there's something about pushing yourself. Yeah, it's about, it's, it's, it's about not wanting to stay in a comfort zone, but to try and go and do something that actually, that mm. you don't know whether you're going to be able to do it or not. Mm-hmm. And I, in some cases, I've spectacularly not done it, <laughs> and in other cases, actually, I've, I've kind of managed to kind of p- put something together that kind of worked. But there is that kind of thing about the um, uh, uh, about just being attracted to things that kind of challenge you, so that you, mm. g- you get a little bit nervous about uh, about you, you don't enter it thinking oh, I've done this before, I know how to do this. Yeah, I think there's something really interesting in that drive to continue learning or expanding your version of the art form. Um, I wonder if you find um, any extent to which your understanding of particular forms, whether it's adaptation, because I know you've done Wide Sargasso Sea for television and so on, and versions of La Ronde, um, as well as a musical, as well as a returning drama, and so on and so forth, how much you find that your understanding of one form or mode of writing informs whatever you then go on to do? Um, Or do you feel that I'm doing something completely different now. I must start from scratch. I think it's all drama, so it all has to kind of. Yeah. I realise that actually that that I must be doing something right in drama when I try and have to write a a treatment in prose for telly, Mm -hmm. and realise how difficult it is to write prose. 
you get a five-page treatment that'll take me weeks. Really? And, I, and actually, in, in some cases, I've ended up phoning up and begging them just to let me write a 20-minute section of the script, right? Rather than five pages explaining what I might write if they commission uh -huh. the script. So we shouldn't expect a Stephen Greenhorn novel anytime. Um, <laughs> but there was a there was a, uh, there was a phase where I thought oh, I should probably write one. I turned forty. I should probably write a novel, right? But then I thought that's probably a bad idea. So um, at the moment I, I'm I'm too busy uh, uh, doing drama. There might be a point where if all if all the drama offers dry up, and then I've got lots of uh, lots of things I want to vent on the page, I might turn to to, to write a novel. But at the moment it's not on the agenda. But it is that thing about that. So there is an overlap of skills across those those uh, medium. But um, it's. I'm not sure what you, what it is that you pull from one to another, other than a sense of a of of dialogue and rhythm, which is common across them, which I think I've got better at over the years. So actually, I think I write less, uh, uh, fewer clunky lines than I did mm. when I started. I went to see uh, my my old school year production of Sunshine on Leith uh, last week. Oh wow! And even that so that was written in 2007 mostly, uh, and even sitting watching that now, you're sitting thinking. The editor in my head. There's there's stuff in that that wouldn't get past the editor in my head. Uh, where yeah. they're at now. So it's I'm I'm hopeful actually that that, that I'm still improving on on things like that. Mm. And um, the other thing is about a sense of audience, mm. which is uh it, it's it's not something that people talk about an awful lot when they're talking about theatre because it's, it's um it, it it tends to be about you know the um about the intent of the writer and about about all that kind of stuff. But because of the way that I kind of came up in theatre. The demographic of the audience was always kind of quite key. So uh, when I started out, uh, the first commissions that I got were for were for writing jokes for Radio Scotland, and then on stage it was a it was there was a commission for Cumbernauld Theatre and the commission for Tag and the commission for Tag was for for young people and it was a, a health play about smoking, and it was terrible. But it it was that thing where we were right from the beginning in those early professional works. There was a uh, there had to be a clear sense of who the audience was and and who you were writing for, and I think that's kind of carried on. And I've got this when I was writing for Seven Eighty Four, I, I used to kind of trail around on tour with them, you know, just annoying them mainly, but help pretending I was helping assemble the set and stuff like that. But the most useful thing about that was watching uh, a play like say The Salt Wound performed in Glasgow and then performed in Wick and then Shetland, mm. and you could see how audiences shifted and responded to it. So you got a uh, I got a deeper sense of what worked and what didn't work. So I, was, mm -hmm. I had that. I used to terrify the actors because kept wondering why I was coming back to watch the play, and they thought that I was going to be giving them notes, but really I was giving myself notes because you could, you know, if you sat through your own play, you know, fifteen, twenty times, you can tell where you've not got the rhythm and the line right. You can tell things that work. You can tell where there should have been a silence rather than yeah, a, a bit of dialogue. Yeah, where things sag or yeah. where actually you need to help the so audience. So I think it's that. And it's, so there's a sense of, um, of of what works for an audience and about how different kinds of audience respond to different kinds of things. And I think that um, having that sensibility uh, or honing that sensibility through kind of following touring uh, productions about and seeing how it works geographically, I think that's really helped when I came to write TV because in TV you don't, you don't, you don't have the opportunity to sit in a mm. throng and watch them respond. You sort of have it now on Twitter, if you're brave enough to to follow a Twitter feed if your TV programmes come out at the same time, which I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's sometimes quite isolated on TV, where actually the only kind of it's a kind of echo chamber of script editors and producers mm. uh, giving you feedback on the script, and then there's a, usually a single read through, and then they're on set. And uh, mm. by the time they're on set, you, your your ability to kind of fiddle about with things is is almost negligible at that point and then it goes out mm. and actually your only chance to maybe see it with an audience would be if they have a cast and crew screening uh, yeah. and, and that's 
that's a kind of a select audience. So it's it, it's sometimes difficult to gauge um, if you're just writing within that vacuum about what the audience response is, because mm. the reviews don't always reflect an audience response. Uh, a critical appraisal of a show is not the same as as how people are feeling sitting watching it in the living room. So mm. y- you know that from watching things like Gogglebox and actually the, the reality of, of how people actually view television. I, I, so I f- actually I found Twitter quite helpful in, get in, in revealing certain things. We did um, a show for ITV called Marchlands and I had a, 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 in my head I kind of thought I, I roughly know who, who, who would be sitting watching this and actually there was a whole demographic that really surprised me which was seemed to be teenage girls watching it with their mums. Oh, okay. And they, the, the, the parents would tweet about it after the episode was finished. But the teenagers would tweet during the episode, yep, scene absolutely. by scene. So you kind of get this live <laughs> commentary. And there was one bit where, um, where there was a kind of, I think there was a kiss. And, uh, and the, the, the Twitter feed erupted with teenage girls going, oh, this is getting a bit uncomfortable, right? And I <laughs> knew there was a sex scene coming up in about oh. 20 minutes. So I was <laughs> bracing myself for the reaction on Twitter, which was genuinely going, oh, thanks, Marchlands, awkward. <laughs> so so that, that, that kind of stuff I, I find really interesting about uh, where, where you, um, the same thing happened with the film of Sanjay Elmise, where there was a, with the demographic, the, the distributor had a really clear demographic in mind. And, uh, and he got it spot on in terms of, um, about trying to make sure that it wasn't just a, an adult market, but it was it was uh, that he promoted it and and cast it carefully to have an appeal to to, to teenagers and young mm. people, and uh, and I was I was kind of I wondered whether he was going to be able to pull that off, but actually that that's that was a big audience for us in terms yeah, of coming absolutely. to see the film, which I wouldn't necessarily have anticipated. So mm. it's interesting um, hearing you talk about the role of the audience or an awareness of the audience in your writing and and how you kind of struggle to find ways to, to maintain that awareness in a medium like television uh, and actually one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the role of collaboration in your work and it's been my perception that uh, television is often perceived by writers to be a less collaborative medium for good or ill than say theatre although I'd, I'd, I'd had this discussion with um, Peter Arnott and, and Mike Cullen uh, at an event last week and I, I think they maybe disagreed with me a, a bit about it but I was interested to know your thoughts on that and uh, the differences between the two. It, it depends what you, what you mean by collaboration. Yeah, I can imagine course. Peter and Mike kind of snorting with laughter at the notion <laughs> that Well, we had a very interesting uh, conversation about how one defines collaboration yes, and the word compromise came up a lot and I think for some, some of the writers in the room um, they didn't see it as compromise, they viewed it as collaboration in a, in a stricter sense yeah. and I, I think I think if you're came at it from a different perspective. Yeah, I think if you're writing in telly, unless you're a writer-director and one of those writer-director-producers like Hugo Blick or Stephen Polyakov, where you're given complete control. Yes, you're that sort of auteur. Yeah, I've never been yeah. uh, graced with that kind of that kind of um, kudos in telly. <laughs> and uh, so, if you're the writer and there is a director and a producer and script editors and executive producers and uh, senior members of the cast, all that kind of stuff. Then you you have to accept actually that that there will be collaboration, mm. even if it, it doesn't if there's not a huge amount of collaboration at the start, uh, but there will be further down the road because actually you you cannot control all aspects of uh, of of what's going to hit the screen uh, yeah. as as the thing progresses, even the script becomes um, picked over mm. by uh, different departments and and uh, the more people that come on the more opinions that are that are fed into it, so you either got to kind of um uh, know what you're doing and and be able to answer you know, uh, questions about why things are a certain way or be flexible enough to adjust it to deal with practical situations. Like on Marshlands we had a situation where because of budget we couldn't have any night exteriors 
So uh, this was a ghost story. Mm. It's quite remarkably a ghost story with no no nighttime exteriors yeah, in that's it, right? <laughs> and to do that, I had to adjust certain scenes, which I'd put as night exteriors, and actually they, they didn't have the money or, uh, or uh, the budget or the, or mm. the timetable that would do them. So you have to be flexible enough to kind of work around that kind of stuff. In theatre, um, the, I think there's a sense that the, the, the writer is a, is 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 the author, right? And, and, and you write, and then there is that sense of author, unless you're working in a particular devised way mm. or, 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 a, or a, an unusual way. But traditionally, there's there's much more of a sense of the writer's author. But a, one of the things that, that I really love about theatre is actually you get to sit in a room with people, and mm. actually you're sitting in a room with people who who are kind of who are generally generally uh, are, are are interested in kind of in uh, contributing to the piece and making it better and adding their 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 sense of, of mm. what their character might do or what their vision for how you might stage it um, in a way that is gonna, that is less brutal, usually. <laughs> Not <laughs> always, but usually less brutal than kinda and, and, and sort of um, and, and more um, supportive than it, that, that it sometimes is in telly. So I think both of them have, um, have elements of collaboration about it. It's just that actually there is absolutely no avoiding that collaboration mm. in TV. It just is, uh, you know, even if you, even if you nailed every word in your script, and refuse to change it through any kind of notes and hand mm. it over, it would still change through the process of being made. Yeah. Uh, uh, and in theatre, I think it's, it's it's daft to think that actually that, that even if you are a very precious writer and, and you know every comma is uh, intricately placed, th there is not something that the people that, that are performing it and directing it and designing it and lighting it bring to that process. So it's kind of it, it's, it's an odd thing where. where uh, where there's a kind of sense of, of authorship about one and not about the other, when actually uh, the both of them involve a, not so much compromise, but a flexibility to take on board other people's ideas and try and build them into your vision that you mm -hmm. had originally. The, the, the difference mainly is about power. Mm -hmm. Is it in theatre, you usually would have the power if there's an idea you really don't like not to include it. Mm -hmm. In television, that's not always the case. Sometimes yeah. there are people who have more power than you who insist that you put that bad scene in and then that becomes quite difficult and that's why you go back and write a play. <laughs> <laughs> um, well I'm interested to hear in maybe a, a little bit more detail about specific instances of collaboration because I know that obviously at the moment you have been uh, co-writing Tracks of the Winter Bear with the very lovely Rona Munro. Uh, oh, that's, that's interesting because like, Rona and I have done this before but then you have to be quite precise about your the definitions of co-writing and course. all that kind of stuff because there's different yeah. formats about how you do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so this is one form yeah. which you might come on to talk about in a minute but obviously and I know you've worked with with Rona before um, uh, on that I think it was the 784, 784 show with Isabel Wright which yeah. Zinni Harris directed as yeah. well who's, who's working on Winter Bear too. So. And what was the process on that? I think you've, you've done it for Payne's Plough, sleeping around. About yeah, it was um, on Payne's Plough, uh, which I did just after I did Passing Places at the Traverse. And uh, that was uh, Vicky Featherston, who was uh, when she was at Payne's Plough. And she brought myself and Abby Morgan, Mark Ravenhill and Hilary Fannin together. Great roster of writers. I know, I know. It's quite, you know, it's kind of, it's quite intimidating <laughs> when you think <laughs> about it now. But at the time, it was just like, yeah, hi, Mark, hi, Abby, hi. Abby. Um, and she, she basically kind of shoved us in a room and said, okay, I want to do a show and use all four of you. Uh, and she had worked out that 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 we might be able to steal the structure of um, La Ronde, the Schnitzler play, and uh, and then do a, a contemporary take on um, a sexuality, uh, not uh, sexuality in society, really. 
a by being quite disciplined about the structure. Originally, we just went at it thematically, and she said, just go away and write half a dozen scenes, and then we'll see if we can mash them all together. And we ended up with some interesting characters coming out of that, but we just couldn't mash them all together. Mm, you couldn't make it into a coherent Yeah, whole. so we ended up kind of like, you know, we just went off at tangents, which was really interesting. I think there was one character that, that, that came out of that that ended up in the final show. And uh, th- then, so there's a point where, where uh, Vicky said, no, enough, right, let's be disciplined. Let's, let's, let's say that you get to write one long scene, two short scenes each, right? And, y- and you choose which character you want to feature in your long scene, and then you have to accept that you're gonna inherit a character from the scene before, which you will have to deal with, and then pass a character on. So there's a kind of, so that we, the only way it worked was there's quite a rigid structure about that. And then even then there was quite a bit of engineering <laughs> around, mm around uh, about passing characters on. Hilary had written a character, which was a brilliant character, but Hilary wrote her really poetically and then handed her on to me. And I was kind of looking at this character going, I'm not sure I could match Hilary's poetics, but they had to try and have a continuity of that character and bring one of my characters in and let them kind of So that's interesting, because obviously it's it's not merely thinking about plot, it's about matching that style or that tone yeah. of character and of form as well. I think what was interesting was that Abby and I had both worked on telly at that point, and we'd both worked on other people's shows. Abby had done uh, Peak Practice, and I'd done The Bill and Where the Heart Is. So we'd both had experience about coming in and matching our voice to an existing tone. And I think that came in really handy in, mm. in that process in terms of being able to kind of find a, a, a a shared territory mm-hmm. uh, where you weren't kind of uh, um, married to one single voice that was your voice that you had to create a, a voice for the show and, and, and adjust certain things but presumably also one would hope that you were still able to explore the things that felt urgent or important oh yeah yeah that, i think that's that. yeah i think that's that's there's a myth about the fact that actually that if you are say working within the the, the restrictions of, uh, of a doctor who episode that you don't get a chance to explore stuff that you want to explore it's just that you've got to have the the, the discipline to understand that there are certain things that have to be met in terms of the thing working as part of an existing show. Mm. But within that, you still have freedom to kind of e- explore things thematically. It's just that you, that it's not the same as in theatre where you might have a, a really clear authorial voice, a certain authorial style, um, and that's your hallmark. Uh, it, you have to be more flexible and to fit into those different forms. So. And how would you characterise the experience of working on Tracks of the Winter Bear? What sort of form of collaboration um, would you describe th- this it process it w- when, a, when we did the 784 show, <laughs> for some mad reason, we decided that, that they, a, Isabel, Rona and I would write a play together, right? an actual single play. right? So we weren't kind of broken up the way it was in Payne's Plough. Um, and, uh, and I'm not quite sure how we managed to do that, which involved kind of people contributing things and other people overwriting them and redrafting them, right? And it was, um, so we survived that, which is why when, when I, it was suggested that Ron and I work on this, we were kind of, we were, we were benign about the fact that actually that, <laughs> that we were still talking to each other 10 years after that event. <laughs> and, uh, but it was much cleaner uh, in, in this instance and in that, that, that uh, we would be doing an, uh, an act each, essentially two companion plays, two one act plays, which were thematically connected. So, th- so the main task was to make sure that, that they felt like they were part of a of a of an evening. Uh, of, uh, they weren't just individual things kind of thrown together as a double bill. So we had to kind of nail down certain things about tone, uh, about uh, location, uh, about uh, thematic things. Which we had to sort of roughly work out what we were thinking about writing about, yeah. and uh, and and see where we felt that we were on a similar territory. And uh, and then we basically kind of 
agreed that there would be um, a bear and then uh, we went off and, and produced the first draft and then kind of compared them <laughs> which is quite <laughs> quite worrying and quite exciting at the same time but there was there was enough thematic overlap uh, that it, they did feel that they were commenting on on similar things and then we were able to build in certain kind of more direct connections once mm. we were thinking about production issues about about whether a, whether a character might be shared across the two pieces or not and mm. so, so we were able to kind of build in certain things that welded them a little bit closer but essentially it was about a thematic and tonal concern mm -hmm. and if you were writing a, a new play for the stage yourself without that sort of particular form of collaboration cooperation and so on um, would you ever send that first draft to another writer to read or would that feel too vulnerable? I mean obviously you might send it to your director or dramaturg or whoever for feedback and, and to start a conversation about but in terms of your process sharing that very early stage with another writer how what's that like and is that something that you ever do yourself uh, out with this kind of process? I'm trying to think if I've ever done that. I, I no, no, generally speaking <laughs> generally speaking I think writers are quite secretive about what they're up to. You know, whenever you kind of, you know, Rona's always saying, "Oh, you know, I've got this new play opening." I'm going, "Well, when were you writing that?" You know, because <laughs> like, you know, I've, I, you know, I've been chatting, and that was never mentioned. So there's always this feeling that actually that whatever's going on, unless it's actually in production, you just don't talk about it. Mm. Um, uh, and the, the it's such a kind of difficult moment when you've done your first draft about handing it over to anyone mm. that really. Like I only hand it over because I'm contractually obliged to <laughs> hand it over to somebody. <laughs> the idea that you might hand it over just kind of just for a second opinion to someone else at that point, mm. uh, it would be too scary for me. So mm -hmm. maybe further down the line, if there's a specific problem that that you're trying to solve, you might ask someone to have a look at it and see if there's any ideas. Mm. But uh, but the idea that y that you would um you would take your baby and kind of toss him across the room to David Gregg or David Harrow <laughs> and ask them to check him over is like too scary. <laughs> So, in other words, that means there's a significant degree, I imagine, of um, trust and a bit of bravery in there about, as you say, handing that baby over to somebody else at that point. Yes, I think it was. I think it was a. It was. It was easy with Rona in this one because we'd we'd gone through the experience of seventy four. Mm. The seventy four thing we had to kind of negotiate a language about how we were going to do it, and then uh, Isabel, Rona, and I had to just basically to accept that we were going to have our egos trampled over by each other, and that we would try and try and not be hating each other by the end of it and actually it was fine. We ended up with quite a quite an odd play but it was really quite interesting because I think it was the kind of play that not one of us would have written left to their own devices so it was kind of like we, f we tried to find this fourth authorial voice that would produce this a collective voice that would produce this different piece of work uh, and uh, it, it wasn't perfect but it was a really interesting uh, process um, and reassured by that that I wasn't I didn't have any qualms in fact that you know Rona being the other writer was one of the attractions of the project because I knew that actually that we would be able to kind of have a shorthand about how we were going to kind of try and make them merge into one evening and stuff so so it was reassuring rather than kind of scary. I'm relieved to hear it um, um, well we're all looking forward to seeing the results of this collaboration uh, on the 9th of December when it opens um, but for now good luck with the rest of rehearsals. Thank you. Thanks Steve. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. 
For more information, please log on to www.traverse.co.uk.